It is true, everybody has to get old, and you do have to move on, and my parents have to learn, as my mother has recently, how to text message. She's 79 years old, and she's really excited, and I randomly send her text messages, and she's like, oh my goodness, and she has been saying, I'm not going to do that for the longest time. Getting older is a part of life. Uh, This week, I thought about it a bunch. Uh, I was at a pastor's conference in Miami for our network. And I am in the upper 5% of age in that group at age 49. They got church planters in their 20s. As a matter of fact, most of them are between the ages of 25 and 35. (laughs) And so you start to realize, wow, time is moving along. This past week, too, I was watching the World Cup. Uh, Soccer is not a part of my framework, so I'm just learning. And usually it's like the Olympics. I I watch every four years and get excited because of the red, white, and blue and, and get pretty thrilled. And this past week, as uh, they you know, finished up their World Cup run, uh, we were introduced to a new American hero, the goalie of the United States team. His name's Tim Howard. And, uh, and uh, he set a record for the number of saves he had in our last loss in the tournament. And, and what it's done is it's spun off these internet memes, memes uh, uh, where, where we... Uh, actually begin to see and people began to speculate about what other things Tim Howard could save. Have you seen these? This is the one with the Titanic. Tim Howard could have saved the Titanic if he'd just been there. Uh, my favorite one is Tim Howard could have saved Blockbuster. See, now this is a, but you know, you realize he, he would have converted them over to Netflix models sooner. Uh, and for the kids, this one here is uh, Tim saving Mufasa from dying. I thought that one was really solid, you know. I, 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 uh, I hearken back to this image that I see every now and again, and I was watching a National Geographic special where this older lion was, you know, kind of in charge of his pride, and, and then this young buck lion comes along and beats the living snot out of this old guy, and, and then what they do is they usher this this older lion to the Serengeti and they have this video of him. Have you ever seen this? Where the, this poor old lion kind of wanders off into, into the plain to die. And I think what a sad thing it must be uh, to feel like you are becoming obsolete. You know, like blockbuster video. I mean, you know, at one time they ruled the world and now whoever was in charge of blockbusters thinking to themselves, what happened? You know, that happened so fast, you know, and it must at some level, you know, be a painful experience. I've experienced this of late, um, thankful beyond words for the 20 and 30-somethings in our church who sort of set the culture around here, but in visiting with Brooks, you know, we were going over the year's schedule, and I was sharing with him, like, my sermon series titles, and he kind of got that look on his face like, that is really 1980s corny, chief. And, and, and I realized, okay, I've got to start flowing all of my coolness through Brooks. You know what I mean? Because clearly I've turned the page. You know, I can't hook up my own microphone. I, I, you know, so I'm, I'm clearly at this stage in life where I'm like, if you'll just let me come and preach on Sunday, I promise I'll just stay out of the way. You know, because, you know, it was like picking a movie on our 4th of July, you know, party. I was like, okay, Renee, pick the movie. Because if I pick it, it's going to be something that's going to date me in a huge, huge way. There is an offense that some people will take in being told that their way, their, their method, 
uh, even something they think is really important has become obsolete. And this is, in essence, the real scandal of today's passage in, in Hebrews chapter 8 that we're going to work through. It concludes with Hebrews 8 verse 13 where the writer of Hebrews says, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. This is at the heart of what's going on in our study of the Hebrews is these Hebrew Christians are dealing with the pressure of being told, you must adapt and change what you think about what you believe because it offends us. And this language that the writer of Hebrews uses doesn't scale back this, uh, scale back the offense. In fact, it sort of kind of ratchets it up a bit. He goes even one step further to remind the Hebrews, as he has through the first seven chapters, the gospel, Jesus, is superior. And for a group of Jews to hear that would be difficult for a group of Jewish Christians to have to be the ones to present a gospel where we have a covenant that has made your covenant obsolete. You can understand why that would be a challenge because some people don't take it so well. It, it's that way now when you make an astounding claim of Jesus Christ being the only means by which people around the world can be saved. It's as offensive today as it was 2,000 years ago. The new covenant that Jesus establishes with both the Jew and the Gentile supersedes, exceeds, and is flat out better than the ones that preceded it because it in fact is the one that all the others were pointing toward. It makes the old covenant obsolete. While to many, particularly those who aren't interested in religious things, this sounds like so much theological gobbledygook. To a person whose whole life is built into this old covenant for a group of people to come along and say, ours is better, yours is obsolete. Well, those, those are fighting words. Now, I'm, I'm encouraged on one hand that we're really digging into this study of the book of Hebrews um, because uh, we needed as a church to really dig our heels in and, and, and really begin to chew on a hunk of Scripture as much as we can. There's so much value in that. There's a concern I have, though, and that is that when you dig into one book of the Bible as much as we are in the book of Hebrews, things can start to sound repetitive. If you go to a gospel-centered church, which ours kind of fits broadly into those category of churches, we talk about the gospel a lot. We talk about grace a lot because we think that it is the motivating factor that when you lack the heart to follow God, you don't need to try harder. You need to discover and rediscover how wonderfully kind He's been to you. In other words, in relationships that you and I have, affections are stirred by time spent with a person. So if your problem is a lack of motivation or you look at your life and you go, I'm not really caring for the poor, we're not saying go home and lash yourself. We're saying, do you realize how wonderfully kind God has been to you? Why don't you go spend time with him? And if you'll spend time with Jesus, trust me, you'll want to repent and follow God and you'll want to actually move into the, the activities and the behaviors that would actually make somebody look and feel like a Christian. So with that said, today's message is in fact repetitive. 
The writer of Hebrews is basically going to go around, if you'll use this analogy, in, in somebody training in boxing. They, if you'll ever watch somebody, of course, I've never have done that, but I've watched people train in boxing. I've never boxed myself. They work a heavy bag, and they'll do it, and they'll punch it, and they'll punch it, and then they'll go to another side of it, and they'll hit that side of it a little bit, and then they'll circle around to the back side. And what the writer of Hebrews is effectively doing is saying, okay, we've been talking about the priesthood. Boom, boom, boom. Now I'm going to move over here, and we're going to go at this thing from another perspective. Covenant. Boom, boom, boom. And, and this is what he's trying to do. He's trying to get a group of people to recognize that what Jesus has come to do, the superiority of Jesus, the, the new covenant that's better, this is not something new. So he's appealing over the course of the book of Hebrews to Old Testament references here, there, and everywhere. And today, to really drive home the point, and this is a little Bible fun fact for you, throw it in for free, no extra charge. All right, and that is that when he quotes here from Jeremiah 31, it is uh, verifiably the longest Old Testament quote in the entirety of the New Testament. So in the middle of these 13 verses that we read today uh, is a chunk of verses verses 8 through 9 of Hebrews 8, that really comes from the prophet Jeremiah. And it's to reinforce to this group of Jews that this covenant thing is not something that we haven't been expecting. In other words, the people that have been, are offended by your declaration of a new covenant, aren't they too waiting for a new covenant? Because this isn't news. This is actually something that was promised, and all we're saying is it has arrived I read from Hebrews 8, verses 8 through 9, but it also happens to be from Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. Obviously, you have to understand a covenant to really get this. Sometimes I'll hear people who are covenant theologians, and I would technically be a covenant theology person. I would never refer to myself as a theologian. So let me distinguish that, because I don't want you to think I think way too much of myself. As somebody who subscribes to covenant theology, I will hear covenant theologians talk about it in ways that, that are almost weepy. I mean, they're like, the covenant. <laughs> And, and it doesn't, for whatever reason, move me like that. I wish it would. Uh, but you would have to understand covenant in order to really get what they're after here. A covenant, according to John Piper anyway, is, is just, a, in essence, a, a sovereignly given promise. Now, usually it has stipulations. In our understanding of the Bible, this is how we read the Scriptures from beginning to end. There was a covenant of works that was established with Adam and Eve, where Adam and Eve were told, hey, listen, this is the deal. You do this, this will be the result. You don't do this or you disobey me and this will be the result. And obviously you know the story. They disobeyed. And so what we ended up with was a severance of our relationship with God. It was effect the covenant breaking. Well, our group of theologians, I speak our, this church's and mine, all believe and now it's called a covenant of grace that extends from the moment that God says to his his separated people, to now. A covenant of grace would cover all of history from the fall of man till now. Now, under that covenant, there have been various administrations, different ways that that covenant was expressed. 
the covenant of Noah, the covenant of Abraham, the covenant of Moses. But now we have a new covenant, a new covenant with Jesus that is really the fulfillment of the entirety of the covenant of grace. I like to think, because you've been around it long enough, and we actually, ironically, we actually meet in a wedding chapel. So now whether you know it or not, when you're not here, they do weddings in this particular building. Hence the stained glass with the, with the, with the rings crossed and all those things. Um, they don't do a lot of them anymore, but they do enough of them. And I'm, I'm not certain that any of them have any religious connection because this is kind of an interfaith chapel and we use it for Christian church. For, for the purposes of our weddings and the hundreds that I've done over the course of my ministry... I can tell you that what I am enacting, what these two who stand before us, this man, this woman, this husband, this wife-to-be, what they are enacting is a covenant. And you'll actually hear people talk about the covenant of marriage, a marriage covenant. We use that word, but we don't really understand what's happening is, is that two people are entering into a mutual covenant. They're saying, I am going to stay with you for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer. They stand before God. They vow this. They stand this before the people and they say, we want you to hold our feet to the fire. We are actually forming a covenant of marriage. Well, this is how you have to understand covenants. You can understand them legally. You can understand them technically. But covenants are really relational expressions. And P.H. Hacking in his commentary on opening up Hebrews says this, this is not intellectual knowledge about God, but the intimate knowledge that comes from a deep personal union of marriage which is the, um, of, of which marriage is the closest picture. So if you're looking for a way to understand covenant, don't think of it in terms of, you know, two people making a decision to sell a piece of property. That is technically a covenant. I mean, you can even hear people talk about the neighborhood covenants if you have a neighborhood association around your home. What God is trying to communicate in his initiatives to people is this is a relational covenant akin to marriage. There is emotional expression. There is something at the very heart of us that wants to and needs to know that God is expressing the desire to be close to us. So I have a couple of thoughts for you today about the new covenant. And as the writer of Hebrews would use it to inspire and challenge people to be bold for their faith, I I would do the same. That you have something to be excited about and you have something for which you can stand and say, yes, I recognize how this might tweak you a bit if you were holding to another methodology of how you were going to represent yourself before God. But I have great news for you. We have a new covenant, and this new covenant is going to make your covenant seem like chopped liver. God wants to initiate relationship with you. And so the first point I'll make today is this. The new covenant is better because it is priestly and perfect. The new covenant is better for two reasons. It's priestly and it's perfect. From verses 1 through 5, the, the first verse of Hebrews 8 says, now the point in what we are saying is this. Now this is the moment where if, if you're a Bible study person, certainly if you're a pastor preparing messages and you're looking for, what's the point of this whole passage? It helps when the writer of Hebrews says, now the point of what we're saying is this. So that should arrest all of our attention. You know, before a televangelist goes, now I know the Bible says that this is the point. Let me give you my point. You need to go, hold on a second. It spoke for itself. This is the point. All right, so let's read the point. All right. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. 
We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of God in the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Now that's a mouthful. But what he is saying to them is, the point of everything we're saying is, we are not playing house. We actually have a house. You know, when you were a kid, you, you, maybe you, you had five sisters like I did. There were often like dolls and houses on the floor. Now, if you grew up in a house full of dudes, you were probably beating each other up. And if you're a young woman, you're a fantastic athlete because you had brothers or those kinds of things. If you're a guy like me, you got exposed to your female sensitive side very early in life. And so there's a house kind of function that went on in our house. You, know, you play house. Well, now I actually have a house and I have two children that are in college. And so I'm not playing house anymore. I'm actually living house. See, this is the writer of Hebrews is saying, you know, all this time we've been interacting with God and we've been using a model of what interaction with God looks like. We've been looking at kind of the temple and the tabernacle. We've been looking at these, these, these priests that have functioned in our world. And now we're talking about we actually have a priest who's not like a man who wanders into a place called the Holy of Holies. This is an actual priest in the actual heavens. He is a priest of all priests, Jesus. We are no longer kind of looking forward to what might be in the heavenlies. We're dealing with somebody who is actually ministering in the holiest of holies in the presence of God, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not men. Now, when you talk about the true tent, you have to hearken back again. Now, at this time in Israel's history, in the first century, they actually had a temple. So they had a physical plant. When you hearken back to the earliest days of the Israelites' experience with the presence of God in the desert, they actually set up like a Barnum and Bailey circus tent. That's what it would have been like. A revival tent right there in the middle of the desert. And they would set this thing up and then they would take it down and they would move it. You can read all about it in the book of Exodus. The, the people in that experience saw literally the Shekinah glory of God come from the clouds and fill the tabernacle. They'd watch this. It was, it was like the 4th of July. Look at this experience with God. He's in the Holy of Holies. And yet at the same time, he would leave that place and, and go back to the cloud and go back into his presence, spirit, hard to understand, He's saying to them, this is no longer something where he's going to come, he's going to go. The new covenant is priestly. Jesus is really in a true tent, if you will, metaphorically speaking. He's in the actual holy of holies in heaven, ministering as we speak. The reason our new covenant is better is because our priest isn't a human being who's flawed. We have a perfect priest in every way. And, and I will say, there are a couple of things I, I must point out. One is in verse 4, when it talks about the Levitical priesthood, it says, now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all. What that means is, because he was not a member of the tribe of the Levites, he wasn't actually able to be a priest in Israel. So Jesus now can be our priest, because in the real tabernacle, it doesn't matter which tribe of Israel you came from. More importantly for our purposes with regards to the Scriptures, the fact that this is written in present tense, and this is just a little another aside for you, it means that at the time the book of Hebrews was written, 
the tabernacle practice, the, the, the temple practice, the temple religious experience, um, second temple Judaism, but more importantly, uh, that there was an actual temple and people, the Levitical priesthood was still functioning at the time of the writing of Hebrews, which means that this book is dated before 70 A.D., so there are going to be people that will say to you, oh, you can't trust the Bible. It was written 100 years after everybody died. That's not true. The book of Hebrews was written before 70 A.D. or else the writer of Hebrews would have been talking about this thing going on as we speak and that it dying away. See, after 70 A.D., there wasn't a Levitical priesthood. There wasn't a temple. As well, when we talk about Jesus' perfection, here is where Jesus is seen as a perfect sacrifice for our sins, a perfect priest. We've been there when we talked about his sympathy, his capacity to understand us as a human being and at the same time being divine. Last week, Brooks talked about the connection between Melchizedek and the kingliness of Jesus and his, his office to us as Savior and as a human being. We look now, though, at Jesus in his perfect locale. He's sitting at the right hand of, the God, uh, of God, Matthew 28. He is in the actual temple of God, not the man-made copy that was the Hebrew tent of meeting. And this is what verse 5 says. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. This is why it's better. It isn't better because it's sort of kind of we think it's better. It's better because it's better. It's better because it's real. It's better because it's not a copy of what heaven looks like. It's not a copy or a metaphor of the presence of God. It's the real presence of God, that which the children of the covenant will see one day when we all are face to face with our Lord. In verses 6 and 7, the writer of Hebrews says, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless there would be no occasion to look for a second. And as I said before, when dealing with the Hebrew Christians, he was telling them, stand tall, stand strong. You have a consistent theology here. The, the, the Jews who are pressuring you right now, they, they are expecting the same new covenant. If, if they didn't need a new covenant, then the, the prophet Jeremiah wouldn't have said this. He wouldn't have gone to all the trouble of saying, There's, there, we're going to look for a second covenant. These people shouldn't be surprised or offended. Things change and change for the better. We are uh, tweaking our children's ministry again. And this summer we're doing some cool stuff. Um, we're putting together our team and we have some neat people that are helping lead and all that. And one of the things we're doing is improving our, our, our nursery so that there is an access and it makes it a little clearer for parents that their kids are safe when they drop Junior off. And, and we used to have this great system, I thought, when we started PRISM three years ago. I, I invested in this, these pagers, you know, like nursery pagers. And boy, I thought they were cool, you know. And, and, and now I realize that when people, particularly young moms, come in and you say, would you like a pager? They're like, What? I mean, they really, honestly, a lot of them don't even know what a pager is because uh, we haven't had beeper stores in a really, really long time. And now, most every ma has a smartphone. 
And as long as they put it on mute, they can bring it into the sanctuary. And so Judy or Holly or anybody else in the nursery, if they have a tr- trouble with a young one, all they got to do is have the text number of that person, and it'll buzz right in the middle of the service and say, hey, come pick up Fred. He is driving us crazy. Or, or you could say, your baby is crying and screaming, mommy, 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 I, I need you desperately, uh, or something along those lines. Uh, we no longer need the beepers. We have them, and I suppose we could put them in there, but they're probably just going to sit there and look as pristine and clean as the day we, we bought them because they go unused, because they're obsolete. But we don't take offense at that. We're like, happy, okay. We don't ever have to buy beepers ever again. It's an investment we're never going to have to make for the church again. Maybe other things we need to make to enhance the experience of our nursery for the children and their parents. But we're happy. We expect that technology is going to improve. We embrace it. Well, this is what the writer of Hebrews was saying. And I would say to you and I the same. If people in our culture are offended by what you would proclaim about Jesus. Ask them if they had any expectation that their life was ever going to get any better. I mean, you say, you know, at a basic level, let me just ask you, are you trying to improve your life? Are you trying to improve your understanding of God? And if they say no, then you can say, okay, well, I guess we don't have to talk. You're right. But if they say, yeah, of course, everybody's in the pursuit of truth. So if you're pursuing truth, why would you be offended If somebody were to come along and say, hey, I think I found the truth. I think I found a covenant that will make you happy and put you at peace with God. The new covenant is is better because it's priestly and perfect. Here's the second thing about the new covenant. The new covenant is better because it's permanent and personal. All right? It's it's priestly and perfect, but it's permanent and personal. Let's move ahead to verse 10 in this section of Scripture. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And they shall not teach each other one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall know me from the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. This whole section of Scripture, verses 6 through 12 of Hebrews chapter 8, is from Jeremiah 31. And what you see in the contrast from the verses here in Jeremiah 31, what you see in this contrast is that there was a way that the covenant of grace was administered before Jesus. The way that this was administered was through the law. And through our continual interaction with this priestly system that was set up for us to encounter God. Now, this covenant of grace has a new administration. This new administration for us is the Holy Spirit is not going to live in the tent anymore. The Holy Spirit is no longer going to be in the tabernacle in the desert. We're not going to take it down. He go up to the cloud, come back down, and we set it up at the next chunk of desert. We're not going to have the Holy Spirit contained in a beautiful Solomonic temple in Jerusalem. No, the Holy Spirit now in this administration of His covenant of grace is coming to live inside of you. That's the promise here from verse 10. The covenant I will make after the house of Israel in those days declares the Lord, I'll put my laws into their heart, uh, into their minds. I'll write them on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. This offer is God's love in our hearts. It's, it's linked, in fact, to Ezekiel's promise in, verse, in chapter 36 of Ezekiel that God will give a new heart to his humble returning Jewish exiles. 
And the new heart that we're given is a byproduct of the Spirit of God coming to live in the hearts of the covenant children. If you trust in Him, if you've professed faith in Him, the Scriptures say the Spirit is not out there somewhere. God is not far off as we think of far off. You have been called, if you will, a tabernacle or a temple of God. You remember the verse? First Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 through 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. This driving force to treat your body as if it is something special for the Christian is rooted in the fact that God's presence lives in you. The reason I should be trying to avoid becoming obese, which would be my tendency with a box of Oreos and a television around, is because the Spirit of God lives in me. And so I'm concerned about my physical being because of the presence of God. But at the same time, think of the reality that's being expressed here. It's, it's, it's presented in Jeremiah 31, reiterated in Hebrews chapter 8. When you want to talk to God, you don't have to look up his Holy Spirit lives in you. The Spirit of God lives in you. This presence that was in the Old Covenant, something that we saw manifested in, in the glory cloud and, and in the tabernacle where the presence of God existed in the holiest of holies. Now he's saying the New Covenant, our priest, Jesus, has gone through the real holy of holies and the real presence of God is there and now that Holy Spirit, for anybody who would believe on Christ, that Holy Spirit now makes its home physically in your being. This Spirit born in you now, the Holy Spirit, is what gives you a new heart. It is what fuels our desire to please Him. It's not just a matter of rote obedience. When we talk about a covenant, we're talking about a relationship between you and your Father. And in the context of Him saying, don't worry, I'm not going to hold your sins against you anymore. The prophet Jeremiah says, I will take away their sins. They will be my people. I will never leave them. Think of God and you at the altar. And he's saying, I commit, I will never leave or forsake you. For better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, unlike the, the wayward spouse, I am never going anywhere. I am going to make a covenant with you. You and I are going to be in relationship. And, and we get back to our discussion at our church about a grace-filled culture. It is precisely because you and I have been made okay with God right here, right now. No questions about it. If you put your trust in Christ, if you genuinely follow Christ, if you have a relationship with Him, if you've entered into a covenant with Him, you are in His sight perfect and flawless and there is no need for you to pretend anymore. In fact, that's a trick of our enemy to try to get you to just kind of cycle interiorly about your wickedness. He's set you free from any punishment associated with that. You have the liberty to be able to say, the presence of God, the Holy Spirit lives in me. I'm already in the Holy of Holies. So why not go ahead and just be honest about it? See, that is the first step toward actual obedience, is recognizing that you're free before God, that the glory of the spirit of the tabernacle, which would abandon the tabernacle, 
And disobedience to God in our covenant of works, our forefathers actually had an, a, a separation in their relationship with God. In the new covenant, no such thing. If you are in relationship with Jesus via this new covenant, even in your disobedience, he doesn't leave you. In fact, he calls you back into relationship and back into fellowship with him. And it is there that you'd find yourself desiring and obeying, or at least desiring to obey. Jeremiah 31's prophetic words came alive for the believers when Jesus instituted the Last Supper. Jesus foretold that he would die, and the Lord's Supper always points back to this. Jesus says with clarity that all offers of a new relationship are now available to be enjoyed personally, just as we take communally within this community the individual bread and wine. This is now not just a religious experience. Perhaps you grew up in church and you went to church with your family. My parents would pile us all into the car, and it was this eight kids in a station or eight people in a station wagon to head to Catholic Mass for us. And it wasn't something I enjoyed personally. I didn't even enjoy it corporately, frankly, because there was always a fight. We were late all the time because I had five sisters. And the, and the deal is, is, you know, in one bathroom. So imagine how long that took. Uh, we would communally do this thing, and that's all it really ever was, was going to this place where they would herd us together into church with a bunch of other people and a bunch of other big families. And then you'd herd yourself home and then get back to your real life. There wasn't this sense of experience Now, I'm not discounting the corporal. That's why we do time together here at our church. That's why we have community groups because faith isn't just individual. But in this new covenant, it is you and God and His presence living in you. You are a tabernacle of the Holy Spirit. You don't have to go to the tabernacle with your community. It's the joy of the Christian church, though, is that all these mini tabernacles of God come together to worship the one who has saved us. And the only reason we can say it's better is because Jesus isn't going anywhere. He has said, I'm never going to leave you. This is permanent. You're stuck with me for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer. And when we have to deal with some of the difficulties and challenges of our own character, sometimes it feels like worse for us. He's enduring with us. He's loving us. But when we're having to face the realities of our own sin and struggle, sometimes, you know, being a Christian, you're like, sometimes I wish I didn't have to deal with this stuff. But he's saying, you know what? I'm going, to do, I'm going to be faithful to you. I'm going to continue with you even amidst your struggle. It's better for us because we had before, and the Hebrews of old had before, an experience where God was sort of out there somewhere and communally we get to experience him. And now we're saying it's better because this is personal. It's, it's just better. This past week when the U.S. lost its soccer match, um, I listened to a lot of sports reports about it, and on a number of occasions, people said, well, you know, this other team, Belgium, was just better, and they're right. Uh, There are probably a half a dozen to a dozen teams in the World Cup that are just better than the United States soccer team. That is not hard for me to admit. You know why? Because I don't care that much about soccer. Now, if you told me that your college football team was better than West Virginia, we might have a go in the parking lot. <laughs> Even though factually you might be right and probably are, I'm emotionally connected to my team. 
And so I got something invested in you telling me that mine is like, you know, subordinate to yours. You know, I'm going to town because I got my heart in this thing. It's my pride. The pride of my alma mater, West Virginia University, is what causes me to be combative when people go, yeah, well, your conference stinks, man. We're from the SEC. I'm like, yeah, well, you're a spoiled brat. So there you go. And all of a sudden, it gets irrational, and I start becoming mean because I got my pride in this. And that's the only reason that anybody, if Jesus really is alive, and if this covenant really is true, And I say these ifs propositionally. If he really is in the heavens interceding for his children, if you and I really are holy in God's sight right this second, then of course what we're talking about is better than trying real hard to be good and hoping one day God might like you. We don't have to cower in fear that somehow or another people are offended by that. The only reason they might be offended, the only reason we are offended by the gospel is because we've got our own pride in the game. It's our pride. We don't want to admit that our way isn't best. We don't want to admit that we can't do it ourselves. Pride is the death of us. But you don't have to stay there. You don't have to keep striving to try to get God to like you by busting your butt and maybe one day if you'll really get it around, he might then think you're okay. He's saying, right now, I dig you. I think you're awesome. I want to be part of your life. You can lay down all of your effort. This is the new covenant. So you now, just be, you're just received into relationship with him. He's saying, come humbly. Allow me to credit to you the holiness of my son, allow me to forgive your sins and cast them as far as the east is from the west. And you have to be impressed with the fact that I just pointed east and knew where I was geographically. And this is the west. (laughs) This is what's offered to you and I in the new covenant. And friends, by the grace of God, for the glory of Christ, that's why the new covenant is just better. So let's thank God for it today, okay? Lord, thank you. Your covenant comes as your offer to us. We didn't come find you. You came after us, and that is what blows me away about your covenant. An unfaithful people that you keep chasing after. What a miracle. I pray that the reality of that, what that expresses about your heart for us, would cause us to turn and follow you, even in these areas of our life where we're struggling to trust you more, to follow you, to obey you, I would pray that the reality of your deep and abiding love, your commitment to us to never leave or forsake us, that that, in fact, would be today as we take communion would cause us to say, Lord, that area that I've been holding on to, that thing I won't trust you about, today I'm going to cease clinging to that. I'm going to let go of it. And I'm going to follow you. And by your grace, continue to do so. That only happens, friend, if you'll allow yourself to be received and accepted into relationship with him by virtue of him alone. Lay it down, bud. Friend, will you lay it down? Let Jesus set you free. Jesus, I pray that you'd bring salvation to our hearts today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.